300 years ago, Sir Thomas More invented the word utopia, where everything was going to be hunky-dory. But now we know it's going to be a green-powered Earth, and that'll be solar-topia. Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden. Don't you know we're gonna have a solitopia, solitopia, solitopia? Don't you know we're gonna have a solitopia all over God's green world? Well, we bit that apple and the garden was lost, and so we had to work to pay the cost. And so we went digging into the ground And started to burn many things we found But don't you know we're gonna have a Solartopia, Solartopia, Solartopia Don't you know we're gonna have a Solartopia All over God's green world Well, we multiplied, we needed more The rich got rich the fuel ran scarce, the price jumped high, and so they gave nuclear power a try. But don't you know we're gonna have a solitopia, solitopia, solitopia? Don't you know we're gonna have a solitopia all over God's green world? But the nuclear plants were built in haste. With too many risks and no place for waste And so from Seabrook to Shoreham Town We have to shut those new plants down But don't you know we're gonna have a Solartopia, Solartopia, Solartopia Don't you know we're gonna have a Solartopia All over God's green world Now we're fighting wars over oil no matter who wins, it will not last. The earth is scarred, the planet is warming. Don't you think that all of it's a great big warning? Don't you know we're gonna have a solitopia, solitopia, solitopia? Don't you know we're gonna have a solitopia all over God's Earth like rain from heaven Don't you know we're 
here with Harvey Wasserman, who is an expert on nuclear energy, and he's an historian, and is, he's going to talk to us today about the risks from nuclear energy, the benefits of solar and other renewable technologies, and what we need to do as a country to minimize the risks that are present and move forward with what he calls solartopia. So, Harvey, welcome. It's great to be with you, Camilla. I appreciate it. My first question is, there's been a lot of advocacy for the expansion of nuclear in the mix of energy sources that we rely on today. So I'm wondering, given the things that you've talked about, about the risk, is this short, short-sighted? Are we being misinformed? Is it a mistake? Is there a place for nuclear, or should there be a place for nuclear in the mix of energy that we use? Well, Camilla, the idea that new nuclear power plants can help solve our global climate crisis, which actually is no longer really global warming. It's global boiling. You do not cool the earth with 400 radioactive fires burning at 571 degrees Fahrenheit. It makes no sense whatsoever. And nuclear power plants also emit carbon-14 and a wide range of other pollution, radioactive and otherwise. And we're now facing a global crisis where the the Fukushima power plant has a million tons of radioactive liquid that it wants to dump into the Pacific Ocean with catastrophic consequences that we, we can't even begin to measure. So nuclear energy is not going to solve the climate crisis, but instead it's going to contribute to it. It's um, contributing now. And how does that compare to renewables in terms of being able to get us to a zero emissions planet? Like what? why would the renewables be a better strategy? Well, for one thing, wind, solar, increased battery efficiency and general conservation and increased efficiency overall, like switching to LED lighting. Uh, none of them emit radiation. We don't have atomic radiation coming from solar panels or from windmills. And that's a, that's a huge a huge difference between that and nuclear power. Uh, solar panels and wind turbines do not create 571 degrees Fahrenheit, like the core of a radioactive nuclear power plant. Uh, you know, there's no radioactive waste associated with solar panels or wind wind turbines. There's waste, almost all of which from these renewables can be recycled, and it, which is not true for nuclear power plants. And, and the bottom line here, wind and solar are way cheaper even than operating nuclear power plants at this point in time. One of the great technological miracles in human history has been the plummeting cost of solar and wind power. When we first started talking seriously about a solar-topian transition in the 1970s, wind and solar were pretty expensive. And, you know, it was very futuristic to talk about a transition to renewables, and it did not appear to be cost-effective. And in the last 50 years, while nuclear has gone up and has been unable to get insurance and has been unable to control its costs, wind and solar have, have dropped by half or more in in most of the uh, applications of those technologies. It's been astounding. The most important of the renewable energy gatherings in the 70s was at UMass in Amherst in 1975. It was called the Toward Tomorrow Fair. And if you had told people at that fair in 1975 that 50 years later, wind and solar would cost what they do today, they'd have written you off as being crazy. The the technological breakthroughs have been staggering. 
So we've seen a tremendous growth in renewables, and yet it still represents only a small percentage of total energy use today. But it is encouraging the progress that we've been making. And I'm wondering what the odds are that this expansion of renewables of all kinds can happen fast enough to address our energy needs in the time frame that's needed. Well, actually, and it's been finally acknowledged on the front page of the New York Times, our renewables have, have actually gone past the tipping point in terms of their physical contributions to our energy generation. Renewables are just about right now about to uh, eclipse coal in terms of general electric production and way more than nuclear. Combined, wind and solar now produce a larger percentage of our electricity in the United States than we get from nuclear. And it's about to go past coal. So. Whereas a few years ago, renewables seemed like a marginal pie-in-the-sky kind of solution. We're now looking at a multi-trillion dollar industry worldwide. I mean, in California, the rooftop solar alone, not counting offshore or onshore wind turbines, not counting solar farms, just rooftop solar in California produces more electricity than the two reactors at the Apple Canyon. So now that we are seeing this tremendous growth, it's very encouraging, yet we still have an installed base of nuclear reactors. And I'd like you to talk about these aging nuclear reactors, how old they are, what the risks are. Are they still vulnerable to explode even if they've been shut down? Should they be shut down? What are the risks from the spent fuel generated by nuclear plants? If you could talk a little bit about the risks of using nuclear energy that we've used since 19... 53 when Eisenhower envisioned a cheap energy everywhere using nuclear. That's never happened. Right. Well, when Eisenhower did that in 1953, he announced in December to a speech at the General Assembly of the United Nations that we were going to pursue the peaceful atom. And the head of the Atomic Energy Commission, Louis Strauss, who's the major bad guy, by the way, in the movie Oppenheimer now, and uh, they don't say this, but in, in that film, but Louis Strauss is the guy who said that atomic energy would be too cheap to meter, which is the biggest economic lie ever told in the history of American industry. So what we have now today is 93 atomic reactors plus one left in the pipeline in Georgia. So essentially 94 atomic reactors for commercial electricity in this country, which are completely priced out of the market. And they are an average of 40 years old. And they are getting huge subsidies. They are each one of the atomic reactors in this country has major problems that I could talk to you about individually for the next hour. South Texas, Davis Bessey, North Anna and Virginia, Diablo Canyon in California. Every one of them is its own issue. The the nuclear issue is a myth. What we have is ninety three or ninety four atomic reactors that each one of them individually Forget about the abstract of nuclear power. Each one of these reactors at an average age of 40 years old could blow up. And they are not insured. They are not effectively inspected. And they are deteriorating. And we have decommissioning problems. We have embrittlement problems, pipe cracking, all sorts of stuff that I could bore you to tears with for the next eight hours. It's a very serious situation. It is inevitable if we keep operating these reactors that one of them is going to blow up. There, there's just no doubt about it. We were told way back when the industry liked to say that it's physically impossible for an atomic reactor 
to blow up. It almost blew up at TMI. We were very, very close. Three Mile Island, thankfully it didn't. Chernobyl blew up, literally blew up. May have had a fission explosion, but then the industry said, oh, well, that's a Soviet reactor. Then we had four, count them, four reactors, American-designed reactors, blow up at Fukushima. And now we don't hear the industry saying they can't blow up anymore. But we had three meltdowns and a hydrogen, well, four hydrogen explosions at Fukushima. Those are General Electric products, you know, any one of the reactors in the United States could blow up at any time. They are poorly maintained. They are uninsured. They are uninspected to the extent that they should be. And they are old. None of you listening in today, or maybe one or two of you, is driving a 40-year-old car. And you can't drive on American streets without insurance, but they're operating these reactors without insurance. So it is a very, very dangerous situation. And these reactors are not cost effective. They're causing problems on the grid because they're blocking renewables. In California, we have wind and solar facilities that have to shut down because the Diablo plant is hogging the grid with way more expensive electricity than we can get from from existing renewables. And, and, and furthermore, and this is a critical point, the Diablo Canyon, the two reactors, very big reactors at San Luis Obispo, uh, employ 1,500, 1,500 employees. The rooftop solar industry alone in California employs 70,000, 70,000 workers. And, uh, you know, it's not even close in terms of job creation. And if we shut the Apple, which we need to do as soon as possible, uh, thousands of jobs will open up in renewable energy. Can you tell us about spent fuel that's generated by nuclear plants and what happens to it, what the risks are from spent fuel? Camilla, every atomic reactor operates on fuel rods, and they're all in an array, and they come in and they... The fission reaction makes them, turns them into the most radioactive substances known to humankind. And they power the reactor for a certain amount of time. They're replaced every 18 months, a third, a third, a third. And when they come out of the reactor in these arrays, they're very, very big. They weigh many, many tons. We have 70,000 tons of high-level spent radioactive fuel rods that are now, they have to go into a, a pool of water for a certain amount of time, five years or more, to diminish their radioactivity. And then they go into, currently they're going into casts, and what we call dry casts at the reactor sites, which are unsafe. But where they're really unsafe is in the fuel pools. And if the fuel pools, God forbid, lose their cooling, they have to be powered, and they have to be cooled 24-7 for years. And if they lose that coolant, and if the spent fuel is exposed to air, as it was at Fukushima, it, Unit 4, it can explode with enormous quantities of radioactive fallout, far more than at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, far more than at Chernobyl. And we, we face this danger every day, especially right now, Camilla at Zaporizhia in Ukraine, where we have atomic power plant with six reactors and six fuel pools. And those fuel pools have to be continually cooled. And if we lose the water or we lose the power supply at a place like Fukushima, but also any other reactor site on Earth, we could have an apocalyptic explosion that could seriously threaten the future of our species as a whole on this planet. 
How much has the United States, would you estimate, invested in nuclear energy with our tax dollars? Overall, the United States has had about 240 plus reactor orders, most of which were canceled, some of which went into construction and then were, con- and, and then were stopped. Most recently, we had $10 billion invested in two reactors in South Carolina at BC Summer. <laughs> they just stopped. You got you two giant mausoleums that are sitting at VC Summer in South Carolina, which will never be finished. They're just junk heaps. And then you've had about 120 or 30 reactors come online in the United States, and we're now down to 93 or 94, depending on how you count. The amount of money that the United States invests in, in nuclear power is essentially incalculable, but it's in the trillions. And if it had been invested in renewables, we would be totally energy self-sufficient in this country right now. There was a report done in 1952 for Harry Truman on the future of energy. It was called the Paley Commission. And that commission recommended going to solar and predicted that in the United States by 1975, there would be 15 million solar-heated homes in the United States. And the nuclear industry and the fossil fuel industry intervened and prevented that from happening. If the money that had gone into nuclear right from the start had gone into renewals, we wouldn't have a, a, a global boiling crisis. We, we, wouldn't, we would be energy self-sufficient. The trillions that have gone into nuclear have been totally wasted, and we're not done because all these reactors have to be decommissioned. All this spent fuel has to be dealt with. The radiation is, is omnipresent. It, it's a catastrophe. I remember when Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House, and then I think they were taken off in another administration. Talk about that. They were for solar water heating, which worked perfectly. Solar water heating has been around for more than 100 years. It's always, it always works. It's always it's done right. It's very, very cost-effective because it's, it's very energy-intensive to heat water. So if you can do it with the sun, as is done all over Israel, it was done in Florida in the 1920s until the utility company came in and stopped it. So Jimmy Carter put solar water heating panels on the rooftop of the White House, and then Ronald Reagan came in and tore them off. I will say this, George W. Bush, uh, Bush too, actually solar heated the White House pool. And then Obama has since put in a very effective solar panels on the White House. That's great to hear. I didn't know that. Who makes the decisions in our government as to these huge investments that are going into different energy technologies? Well, actually, a lot of it's come from the White House. You know, Reagan put a lot of money into nuclear. didn't work. Clinton put some money into solar. Bush put some money into solar. But it's basically a White House decision that goes then to the Department of Energy. And Biden has made a huge difference with the IRA, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, and it, it ha- has actually vastly impacted uh, the energy picture in a very good way. And prompted, among others, the New York Times to report on its front page that the transition to renewables is actually happening a lot faster than you think. I want to ask you about the conflicts of interest that the U.S. government may have in terms of promoting nuclear. Why would they want to keep nuclear going? Well, unfortunately, nuclear power, commercial nuclear power, has always been inseparable from military nuclear power. There is no separation. For years, the nuclear power industry tried to say, no, 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 we don't have anything to do with nuclear weapons. But the fact is, the nuclear power industry has been a constant source of two important components for the nuclear weapons industry, which is nuclear fuel, nuclear materials for the uh, for the bombs, which are 
duplicated in the nuclear power plant, and also trained personnel. There's a revolving door between the nuclear power industry and the nuclear weapons industry. And the weapons industry really needs the training facilities and the, the flow of, of trained people to work in the nuclear power industry and the nuclear weapons industry simultaneously. Like, do you see that as a conflict of interest? It's a huge conflict of interest because people are pro-nuclear people. People who favor nuclear weapons are saying, look, we need these nuclear power plants because we need the fuel and we need the, the personnel. It's an argument that the proponents of nuclear power are using to squash the progress with renewable energy because they need uh, an electric power component which is replaceable with renewables to keep the weapons industry going. So you mentioned that these nuclear plants that have minimal have minimal insurance and yet they are very vulnerable, average of 40 years old in this country. Let's talk a little bit about the liability picture. If they don't have insurance or they have minimal insurance from the federal government, what happens if there's a problem with one of the plants in our country, like the one out near you in Diablo Canyon or any other one? Who bears that? Who, who bears well, the liability? If God forbid there's a nuclear power disaster, and the radioactive cloud comes over and affects your health or your children or your, you know, your whole family or wipes out your property, you're out of luck. Every homeowner policy in this country has a disclaimer saying that the insurance company is not liable for damage done by a commercial atomic power plant. This was set up in 1957. The Congress wanted the nuclear power industry to, to move ahead. The utility industry told the, the government that they will not they would not build nuclear power plants because they could not get insurance against the catastrophe and would therefore be wiped out if God forbid there was a radioactive cloud doing a few trillion dollars worth of damage. So the Congress intervened with something called the Price Anderson Act in nineteen fifty seven, which said the federal government will set up a fund, it'll collect the money from the nuclear power plants. And this fund will be what ensures nuclear power. And meanwhile, in 15 years from 1957, we expect, we will let this go because we expect private insurance industry to step forward. Well, all these years later, 56 years later, the private insurance industry has not stepped forward. There is no substantial private insurance. There's little bits here and there. But the bottom line is that the federal government has now has a fund of maybe $12, $13 billion that's collected from the power plants. And that's what's supposed to cover an accident that clearly, well, you tell me, how much, what is the financial damage that will be done by a radioactive cloud from Diablo Canyon pouring over Los Angeles? Do you want to calculate that number and tell me if it's more than $13 billion? Uh, so the reality, and I have a, we own a home here in Los Angeles, and we have a clause, uh, the, the standard clause in our insurance policy, that says if, God forbid, there's a major disaster in a nuclear power plant, we're out of luck. we got to go beg the government for, you know, pennies on the dollar, uh, as if that would have any meaning. So what, what does it tell you about an industry whose first power plant went online in the late 1950s and in the, in the early 1920s, we still don't have insurance? What does that tell you about the safety of nuclear power? So we've got present day risks. What are the risks from the, the long-term risks? Doesn't this spent fuel get buried in the ground for tens of thousands of years and present other risks as well for future generations? Well, we've had an unfortunate experience with storing radioactive waste underground. There was a big dump in, in Russia, Soviet Union, called Kishtim, which blew up. Big deal. Very bad. And then we, we had this facility set up 
at Carlsbad, New Mexico, a military facility, where they spared no expense. This was supposed to be state-of-the-art. And within a matter of, it was supposed to be, you know, thousands of years. That's what they advertised. And in less than 10 years, they had an explosion. Inside the, the facility, uh, 20 workers contaminated it and shut down for two years. So, you know, and then they just opened a new one in Finland, and they're all talking, oh, this is perfect. There's no data. We don't have 10,000 years worth of data that proves that this facility is going to be safe. Yucca Mountain in Nevada was designated that was going to be the place they were going to send it. Small problem. I've been in Yucca Mountain, by the way. I took a tour of Yucca Mountain. I went with a geologist and showed me. He said, well, that's, that's where the earthquake fault is. And meanwhile, there's perched water on top of the mountain, which is a dormant volcano, by the way, and which could just, the water could just drop down on the radioactive waste in the event of an earthquake. So they spent, what, eight, ten billion dollars on Yucca Mountain. It'll never open, partly for political reasons, but, you know, you also don't have a railway there. It's in the middle of the desert. It made no sense ever, except in terms of the, who, who ran off with the eight billion dollars. So, no, we have no solution. And we have cracking casts already at the Abu Canyon and elsewhere where they put the fuel in the pool and it, it you know, loses its radioactivity to a certain extent. And then it still goes hot into these basic boxes. That's what dry casts are, these boxes. And it's supposed to sit there, vulnerable to terrorist attack, God forbid, cracking, insufficiently cooled. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. You have, you have radioactive waste at San Onofre. Three reactors shut between L.A. and San Diego within 100 feet of the ocean, for God's sakes. It's a nightmare and completely irresponsible. We're leaving this for our grandchildren and beyond for like a few moments of electric power. So I want to talk a little bit about the film with Oliver Stone that was very pro-nuclear, it seemed. And I just had a lot of questions about things that were said in that film that I want to bounce off of you, if I could. Um, So my first question is, it suggested that renewables don't really have the potential to power at scale, such as whole cities or continents, I think they said. So I'm wondering, can renewables work at scale? And does it have to be on a centralized basis? Or are we talking about rooftop distributed solar? Every city in the country, every city in the world could be powered entirely by renewable. And the key is to put the panel, the solar panels on the rooftop. That's the key. And use microgrid so that we're not dependent on a large-scale grid. And I want to start with Los Angeles. That's the basic reality of solartopia, is you put solar panels on every rooftop. You use energy efficiency to cut demand while maintaining the same standards. You go to electric on public transportation. You use offshore wind or, or onshore wind, in the case of the Midwest. And you've got plenty. There's plenty of energy there, and we can do it. With great cost-effectiveness, and tremendous job creation. One of the other things that was said was that, said that Bill Gates, who is a billion dollar level investor in solar, has said that the no battery is even close to allowing us to get all of our energy from renewables. So what's your understanding of the status of battery technology today? Well, Bill Gates, despite his billions, is dead wrong. The one place where there's really huge room for significant jumps quickly is the battery technology. And we're on the cusp of a major transition from lithium-based batteries, which will be with us for a while in transportation, to sodium-based batteries, which will take over in the big land-based stationary backup situation. Battery technology is about to 
turn a huge corner. There are problems with lithium, but it's lighter and, and will probably continue to be used in transportation. Sodium is everywhere, and it's very, very cheap, but it's bulkier. So the use of batteries, which is essential, of course, to renewables because of the intermittency. Fossil fuel industry or King Kong, coal, oil, nukes, and gas, love to talk about the fact that the sun doesn't shine at night and, you know, the wind doesn't always blow. So you need battery backup. And the battery backup has been based on lithium, but is about to change to sodium, which will change everything. The batteries will be bigger and heavier, but they're not going to be moving around. And they'll be way, way, way cheaper. This is not pie in the sky. We're talking now. I mean, we're talking transition right now to stationary uh, sodium-based batteries. And that basically will change everything. So one of the things the film also mentioned was the cost of illness. They were comparing the cost of illness from coal and saying they were very high in contrast to nuclear being a clean fuel. But they didn't, they made no comparison with solar and wind. So how would renewables compare in terms of the health considerations? Well, unfortunately, I went into uh, central Pennsylvania after the accident through my And uh, the industry still says that no one was harmed. It's one of the biggest lies ever told. The consequences of low-level radiation are epic, almost apocalyptic, let's put it that way. One of the great things that wasn't dealt with, one of the great stories in terms of scale in the Oppenheimer movie, is that they failed to deal with the health impacts of the radiation from the Trinity test. And there are very, very substantial studies showing that the people in the area uh, of the Trinity test who weren't told anything about the coming bomb suffered hugely from low-level radiation. And we have clear statistics showing that when a nuclear power plant opens, the infant death rate and the cancer and general mortality rates go up based on low-level radioactive emissions. And when the reactor is shut, the infant death rate goes down, as does the local cancer rate. So the impacts of low-level radiation are enormous, and they are enormously covered up and, and unstudied by the, the industry. The industry, one of the greatest abilities that the nuclear industry has displayed is the ability to not study the health impacts of what their product does. The nuclear industry is very much akin to the tobacco industry, to the glyphosate industry, to 5G, to all the major polluters that we've seen through history, which have done a wonderful job of not studying or of lying about the health impacts of their product. So the film with Oliver Stone suggested that nobody was, that they, they said reports showed that nobody was harmed at Three Mile Island and that it was a partial meltdown and that the, the containment structure prevented radiation from damaging the surrounding area. How many were actually harmed or killed from that accident? I remember you went in there, as I recall, into the area after it happened, right? What can you tell us? I went to Three Mile Island in January. I went to central Pennsylvania in January of 1980. And I spent a week or 10 days interviewing people in the neighborhood. It was the worst week of my life. I sat in kitchens at tables and farmhouses with people showing me their hair falling out, their scars, their, you know, their tumors, that what was happening to the animals. It was like being in a bad Japanese science fiction movie. You know, it, it was terrible. I did have an op-ed published in the New York Times on the first anniversary of the accident at Three Mile Island. And then wrote a major, co-wrote a major book about it called Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Radiation, which published by Dell, and it's available free on the internet. 
But the bottom line is that the health impacts of, of Three Mile Island were tangible. But the state of Pennsylvania refused to study it, and the nuclear industry wouldn't do it. The Baltimore News American sent a three-person team of reporters into central Pennsylvania to report on the animals and what happened to the farm animals. It was terrifying. You know, cows stopped reproducing. I held in my hands a dog that had been born right across from the plant during the accident with no eyes. Uh, you know, you couldn't make this stuff up, and it was horrifying. And all the farmers in the area, all the people I talked to, were of one mind, which is that the radiation was killing them and their animals, and even the trees, as a matter of fact. So that Oliver Stone would repeat the industry lie that no one was harmed at Three Mile Island. It would be like him doing a film saying that nobody was harmed by cigarette smoke and that glyphosate is good for you and that 5G uh, improves your health. I mean, it's on that level. They also said in the film that, um, well, they quoted the WHO UN saying that 50 people died at Chernobyl at the <clears throat> reactor and 4,000 over the long term from cancers and people downwind of the radiation. So do these numbers seem correct to you? The hype coming from the United Nations and the nuclear industry that very few people were harmed at Chernobyl is a complete lie. And I was horrified that Oliver Stone repeated it in the movie without citing a very well-known study done by three Russian scientists showing that more than a million people were killed by the radiation from Chernobyl. These, these three scientists gathered up about 5,000 different studies. You know, after Chernobyl, the scientific community kind of saw it as a big feeding trough, and they ran into all these studies related to radiation. And these three Russian scientists collated, essentially, the, the studies and came to the conclusion that more than 980,000 people had been killed by the radiation from Chernobyl. And this was years ago, so you would say more than a million by now. Very convincing, totally credible, science-based study. In the movie, they had a, a, an elder Russian scientist that they interviewed who felt a lot of remorse over what had happened because he said that it occurred because there was a risky experiment that senior scientists didn't know about, and also that the first responders lacked adequate protective gear, suggesting that if they had known, this whole Chernobyl situation wouldn't have happened. I found that kind of uh, interesting. You know, that's what makes a film a mockumentary and a piece of propaganda, as opposed to a serious document. Because he could also, Stone could also have interviewed the Russian scientists who did the major volume, the single most in-depth study of the health impacts of Chernobyl, and concluded that a million people had been killed. These three guys are, you know, very solid, very credible Russian scientists, spent five years collating all these studies that came out of Chernobyl and said, hey, a million people were killed. Stone never interviewed them. I highly recommend people look at the HBO series on Chernobyl. Devastating. My recommendation is to start watching it early in the day. It totals up about eight hours. And if I had it to do over again, I would watch it all cover to cover. Because I watched it over three nights and I, I didn't sleep for three nights. And I've been with the nuclear industry for, long, obviously, 50 years. So the, the Chernobyl disaster was eminently uh, avoidable. So was Three Mile Island. So was Fukushima. But they happened. And the next one's going to be totally avoidable, but it's going to happen too. And that's what happens when you have 430 reactors worldwide and 94 in the United States. There will be more accidents. And, you know, some guy will come out, some scientist or man or woman will come out after and say, oh, this, this, and this shouldn't have happened. It was totally avoidable. Yeah, it was totally avoidable, but it happened. 
And if you had predicted exactly what happened at Three Mile Island the day before it happened, they would have laughed at me. Same at Chernobyl, same at Fukushima. And in fact, at Fukushima, I marched in Japan with millions of people, citizens of Japan, demanding that Fukushima not be built in the 1970s, predicting exactly what happened. And the Japanese government said, no, it's not credible. You people don't know what you're talking about. And exactly what we predicted happened. And it'll happen again. And they'll say the same excuse. And they'll have people like Oliver Stone making whitewash films. And the first thing the nuclear industry will say is no radiation escape. Then they'll say, oh, radiation escape, but it won't harm anybody. And then they'll say that the studies showing people were harmed, as we're seeing at Fukushima now, are not credible. It's, it's a queer pattern. So they had a chart in the film that showed it was a chart of deaths per terawatt hour that showed nuclear being the lowest, comparing with brown coal, coal, oil, biomass, gas, and then nuclear in the last place. But interestingly, they didn't have anything about deaths from solar and wind. <laughs> you know, it's a tragedy that Oliver Stone would have sacrificed his credibility. I mean, they don't show deaths happening in nuclear power plants because they don't find deaths happening in nuclear power plants because they don't study it. The line at Three Mile Island is not enough radiation escaped to harm anyone. But they don't know how much radiation escaped at Three Mile Island because the stack monitors went off scale. And there were things called thermoluminescent dosimeters surrounding the plant to indicate radiation exposure. And the thermoluminescent dosimeter in the northwest quadrant went off scale. And you know what they said? They said it was a defective meter. <laughs> I mean, yes, it showed radiation, but it was defective. I mean, come on. It's outrageous. They do not know. Nobody knows to this day how much radiation escaped from Three Mile Island and where it went. So let's talk about Fukushima and what they're about to do to the oceans. Well, there's also, Camilla, a pretty good um, docudrama about Fukushima called The Days, which I believe is at Hulu. It might be at Netflix. I think it's at Hulu. called The Days. It's not quite as harrowing as uh, the Chernobyl documentary. But nonetheless, at Fukushima, they still, Fukushima happened March 11, 2011, and more than a decade later, they still don't know where three of the radioactive cores are. They melted into the ground, and they're pouring water in 24-7 to keep them from blowing up. And they, they don't know exactly where they are, but they have to contain the water because the water becomes extremely radioactive. They now have a million tons, a million tons of highly radioactive water stored at Fukushima in these tanks, which are decaying. And the Japanese government wants to throw it all into the ocean. And the nuclear industry, with all its clout, is getting agreement from other governments and agencies, the UN agency. There's no data on what a million tons of radioactive water are going to do to the Pacific Ocean. The fishing industry in Japan is completely freaked out. The Japanese public is against doing this, as is the Koreans and the Chinese. But, you know... Uh, they just want to dump it out, dump it in the ocean. And this is going to go on in perpetuity, yes. right? Yes, there will forever be radioactive water coming from Fukushima. And we have no idea what it will do to the Pacific Ocean, but it ain't going to be good. We've already discussed very quickly after the accident at Fukushima, tuna, which were caught in California, were shown to have radiation from Fukushima. I mean, it's, you know, it's calculable. 
where is the data that shows us this is safe? Where is the insurance? Where is the, the knowledge, the wisdom to say that this radiation is not going to destroy our ocean? There's none. It's an uncontrolled experiment. I remember I was in San Francisco in a restaurant and sort of surprised because they had two kinds of salmon on the menu. One was Atlantic salmon and one was Scottish salmon. And I asked the waitress, you know, why don't you have Pacific salmon? Is it because of Fukushima? And she nodded yes. She said people don't want the Pacific salmon. And then back on the East Coast in the local fish market here, I noticed that Atlantic salmon was, you know, over $20 a pound, but they had their Pacific salmon that was like around $3 a pound. So it looked to me like they were dumping salmon yeah. from the Pacific on the East Coast where people wouldn't even be thinking about it. They'd just choose the cheaper food. But anyway, I want to go on to Germany. I think the film said that they, that Germany says it won't support an energy form that they cannot fully control. I'd like you to address the stand that they're taking and also the the fact that it was stated that they still burn coal and have the highest electricity costs and carbon emissions. So Germany had the good fortune in 2011 to have a prime minister who had a brain. Her name was Angela Merkel. She was trained in chemistry. Actually. She's a physical, physical chemist, a, a quantum chemist. And she was resisting the very large green movement in Germany that wanted to shut all Germany's nuclear plants. And the German Green Movement called a giant demonstration early in 2011. And then Fukushima happened before the demonstration. And Angela Merkel said, okay, enough. And she agreed to phase out nuclear power and phase in renewable energy. And over the, the next 12 years, they, they shut their 19 reactors, the last of them shutting in early 2023. And the of course, in the middle of that, the reactors in Zaporizhia in Ukraine have come under attack, heightening the paranoia, the disturbing reality of a nuclear power plant, a large nuclear power plant that could go wrong. So the nuclear industry and the fossil fuel industry have been screaming at the Germans to not phase out these reactors. But Germany's not exactly a hippie colony. I mean, you know, you have big business runs Germany. And they did the numbers, and they realized that they could do better going to renewables. And they proceeded. There was a three-month delay, but they proceeded to shut down their last reactors, and all the reactors in Germany are shut. Now, next door, you have France. And France has been the alleged poster child of the nuclear power industry. They have 55 reactors. And guess what's happened in France? The reactors, they have standard designs, 900 megawatt and 1300 megawatt Westinghouse designs. and the problem with a standardized design is if you have a problem in one of them, it's generic. You've got problems in all of them. And in the last couple of years, the French reactors have been just stricken with terrible engineering problems that are re replicated throughout their fleet. And they had to shut more than half of the reactors in France over the past couple of years at various times. So the great irony is that France, which is hugely dedicated, Still, the nuclear power, verbally, has shut more reactors in Germany, which has gotten out of it. Germany shut 19, and in France, more than 30 have shut. Now, Germany has continued, because they have coal, they have continued to export power to France. So France, which has 55 reactors, is importing power from Germany, which has none. And a very substantial percentage of the coal being burned in Germany is to supply France. And that's the reality of it. Germany is on schedule and on target to go 100% renewable for its domestic use with windmills in the North Sea and with a tremendously successful solarization project 
throughout Germany. I will say that one of the funniest lines I've ever heard, and there aren't many funny lines in the anti-nuclear business, but a guy on Fox News said that it was easy, easier for Germany to go solar than the United States because Germany has more sunlight than the United States. This guy actually said that on Fox News. There were there's mentioned that many countries are very committed to nuclear, like Sweden, Canada, India, Russia, and you know that Sweden. I remember them saying is having great success with nuclear. What do you make of the countries that are moving decidedly in that direction compared to Germany? Well, there aren't any. Sweden had weapon reactors. They've been phasing them out. There's a big fight over them. Sweden's not going to build any more new ones. Finland built a new one, which is a catastrophe. And in fact, the last eight atomic reactors built in Europe and the United States have been complete disasters. Sweden built, or Finland built one, Okrioto, which is years behind schedule and billions over budget. The French are building one, Flammaville, not yet finished, years behind schedule, billions over budget. Two at Hinckley in, in Great Britain, same situation. Two in, in Georgia and the United States. The two at Volcker in the United States were scheduled in 2008. Obama gave them a big government loan. They were scheduled to be done in 2017. They're still not finished totally. They were supposed to be $14 billion. They're coming in at $36 billion, $20 billion over budget, for God's sakes. And the two in, in South Carolina, BC Summer, they spent $10 billion. They worked on it for 10 years, and they threw in the towel and bankrupted Westinghouse. So you've got some countries, you know, the Saudis, the Russians, uh, India, they all have interest in nuclear weapons. The Chinese are still of two minds. The most reactors by far in the world under construction or scheduled to be built are in China. But they're also doing renewables. And there's this dialogue going on in China, which is going to dominate when nuclear or solar. When the Chinese decide, and I think they'll go to solar, the entire picture for nuclear power uh, will will collapse. There are like 30-some on the drawing boards or on the construction in China alone, and the rest of the world, maybe a dozen. So it's not viable. Other countries are building one at a time, but then, you know, Belgium is going to get out. Uh, Italy got out. Spain got out. A couple of Eastern European countries are talking about building them. But, you know, it's one thing to talk about building them. It's another thing to actually get it done. And as I said, the one in Finland took more than 15 years, I believe. Volkl has taken 15 years. So, no, it's not viable. Even the countries talking about building, most of them, if all of them, uh, will not be finished. So let's talk about Indian Point nuclear reactor in New York that was shut down. Does it still pose risk? Well, the Indian Point fight was very instructive. The one good thing that Governor Cuomo did was shut Indian Point because he realized an accident there would wipe out all of Manhattan, not to mention New England. So after much, much battle, the two reactors at Indian Point have been shut. But as at Fukushima, there are large quantities, many, but there's many, many gallons of radioactive liquid at Indian Point that they want to dump in the Hudson. And you have a similar situation at Pilgrim in Massachusetts, south of Boston. They want to dump God knows how much radioactive liquid into Cape Cod Bay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's this insanity, and it's going to be with every reactor. And it continues. Every nuclear power plant puts radioactive water into a river, lake, or the ocean. Everyone heated. How does that fight global warming? What does that do for the ecology? This has to stop. I mean, Diablo Canyon also. Large quantities of radioactive coolant are being poured into the Pacific Ocean. This can't continue. So Indian Point, yes, thank God, we shut it. As you know, Camilla, the people who took down the World Trade Center talked very serious about flying their planes into Indian Point, which would have been apocalyptic. And thank God they didn't do it. 
So I remember in the, the film we were talking about, said that, that Ralph Nader had said that a nuclear disaster could wipe out Cleveland, and they called it wildly exaggerated. So is that true, that this is wildly exaggerated, that a city like Cleveland or New York could be destroyed? Unfortunately, the idea that a nuclear power plant could destroy one or more major cities is totally credible. I mean, we're direct, I live in Los Angeles, we do, we're directly downwind from two reactors at Diablo. If those reactors blew up, the radiation, God forbid, would blow right into Los Angeles. Could a atomic reactor, an accident, threaten an entire city? It's already done so. At Fukushima, the, the prime minister of Japan, Nato Khan, was seriously contemplating evacuating Tokyo. 15 million people. Luckily for Japan, and not so luckily for California, the prevailing winds at Fukushima were straight out into the Pacific Ocean, steadily. If the, the predominant winds at Fukushima had been north to south, straight into Tokyo, which is about 180 kilometers south, if the, the radiation had been blowing straight into Tokyo, they'd have had to evacuate Tokyo. And he, Nato Khan, who speaks today publicly about this, said they were very seriously trying to evacuate Tokyo. So yes, an atomic reactor could destroy a city. When Ralph Nader was talking about the destruction of Cleveland, he was referring primarily to the Davis-Bessey reactor, which is upwind at Toledo, could have wiped out Toledo too. And then just east of Cleveland, if the wind shift came east to west, not, don't usually do so, but Perry is directly up downwind from Cleveland, could destroy Cleveland, God forbid, if there's an accident there. The Perry nuclear plant was damaged by an earthquake, for God's sakes. The other thing you want to remember, uh, Camilla, about can a nuclear disaster destroy a city is that in October, October 5th of 1966, the Fermi nuclear plant in Monroe, Michigan, was on the brink of an explosion. And they were very seriously thinking of evacuating Detroit. And there's a book came out about it in 1974 by John G. Fuller, published by the Reader's Digest, called We Almost Lost Detroit. And ironically, the first rap song was written by Gil Scott Heron, first talking rap song. And it was about the, the nuclear accident at Fermi. And it was called We Almost Lost Detroit. So there you go. So people have said that offspring of survivors of nuclear accidents have increased genetic defects and horrible mutations. But in the film, it's said that a massive number of studies do not support this. What do you know about the health effects, current and the long-term health effects and genetic damage? There are a lot of things about Oliver Stone's pro-nuclear movement that infuriated me. But the, the idea that children were not harmed by the radiation from Chernobyl is outrageous and completely contradicted by the science. There is a whole project called Children of Chernobyl, funded in part by a friend of mine, just dealing with children who suffered serious genetic defects downwind from Chernobyl. This is absolutely known. There is no scientific reason to question the fact that children were severely damaged by radiation from Chernobyl, as is well known at Hiroshima. And Nagasaki. I mean, the, mil the American military, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, immediately went in there, led by Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, and said that there was no radiation damage when they knew that wasn't the case. And we, we know without any shadow of a doubt that children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were harmed by radiation at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and similarly at Chernobyl, and it will be the case also at Fukushima and through now. There's no doubt about this. And 
why Oliver Stone would go out of his way to tell this lie, I found deeply disturbing. So let's talk about the small modular reactors that they featured in the film, suggesting that these were a better strategy. And they even suggested that smart homes might have, you know, distributed reactors within smart homes in the basement of your home. So do the small modular reactors have less risk? Well, yeah, small modular reactors have less risk because they don't exist. There are two small details that were left out of Oliver Stone's film about small modular reactors. One, nobody, not even the people making them, believe that we can have them in any shape or form applicable for commercial use for six years. These are on the drawing boards. There's one company that has a partial license to proceed. Bill Gates' tariff power does not have licenses to build these reactors and proven their designs yet. They're six years away, minimum. Even if we folded our tents in the anti-nuclear movement and said, everybody said, yes, let's build small modular reactors. And he can't have them until the 2030s. What if they are able to move forward? Uh, What are the risks? The risks of small modular reactors are everything that we feared about big reactors as well. They They can tell us theoretical all they want. For decades, we were told by the nuclear industry that a commercial atomic power plant could not explode. And and now we have had them explode. Whatever they tell us about small modular reactors is theoretical. They don't know what they're dealing with. So, and, but we do know that they can't be built in any way, shape, or form in, in any timely fashion to deal with the global boiling crisis. If, if in fact they would help, which I don't believe they would, I think small modular reactors would make the global climate crisis worse. And not only that, not only no time frame that's workable, but the cost is ridiculous. Nobody, even in the industry, can argue that small modular reactors will be competitive with renewables. Not now and not six years from now. Because the whole history, well, we have the pricing now. Even what the industry is saying their, rea- their reactors will cost can't compete today with renewables. And the whole history of renewables is it goes down in cost. The whole history of nuclear is it goes up in cost. And what they're saying basically now is, is the equivalent of too cheap to meet. It's another nonsense why they will never get private funding, except from, and there's a very interesting article, uh, Camilla, written by the former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Allison McFarlane. And she says basically that the small modular reactors are nothing but a scam to get government money and what she called stupid money. In other words, high profile, the big shiny penny here, invest in small modular reactors, they're going to lose their money. I mean, you know, these are not viable, they're theoretical, and they're not going to have anything but a negative impact. So the film said that there is growing bipartisan support for the new advanced nuclear like Oklo microreactor in Idaho as one example. And so I'm wondering, what's your understanding of, you know, is there objection to nuclear in Congress also? Where are we politically? Well, I'm going to have to refer back to that bastion of anti-nuclear power, which is Wall Street. Nobody in their right mind is investing in new nuclear except those who are on a scam. And I got to say, Bill Gates, you know, people think he's so smart because he's got billions of dollars. It's ridiculous. There's no financial reason to invest in nuclear, whether the old reactors 
which have been catastrophic in terms of their construction, or the new reactors, which don't exist and can't exist until the 2030s, with God knows what they're going to cost, God knows how long they're going to take to build. And the same, by the way, with fusion, which, you know, fusion depends on a concentrated temperature of 100 million degrees. How exactly do you cool our planet with a fire, a fusion fire that's 100 million degrees? The answer is you don't. And so, sure, there's always Democrats that are going to support it. There's always Republicans who are going to oppose it. Party affiliation has never meant anything in the nuclear power argument. Uh, you do have a couple, like Ed Markey, who, who knows what he's talking about, who are in a staunch opposition. And like I say, you had Angela Merkel, the head of Germany, who finally came out against it. So, you know, they can support it all they want. It's just a waste of money. Small modular reactors are, are not going to happen. Even in the last few years, they've jumped up by 50% in cost. Uh, next couple of years, they'll double, they'll triple, they'll take, you know, five, 10 years longer, and they won't happen because solar and wind have exceeded all expectation and continue to, as do batteries and efficiency. And that's where the energy future is. And nuclear is just a delusion. You know, what was really disheartening about the film is when they suggested that nuclear is the, I think they said it's the only industry responsible for its waste, portraying the nuclear industry as a good corporate citizen. Nuclear power industry has no idea what to do with their waste after 50 years or more of trying. I mean, it's not like this is a new problem here. You know, they promised a solution to the nuclear waste situation in the 1950s. And they like to say, oh, it's political. People are scared. Of course, people are scared. They should be scared. It's scary stuff. It's dangerous stuff. It's damaging stuff. Why would you even think of doing it when you don't have to? Harvey, what needs to happen? I know you're really concerned about Diablo Canyon out there by you in LA near a lot of earthquake hotlines. What needs to happen there and in Zaporizhia at the other locations around the world? All the nuclear reactors have to shut as soon as possible. We have 430 worldwide or thereabouts. We have 93 going on 94 in the United States. They are incredibly dangerous. They're insupportably dangerous. Another Fukushima, Chernobyl through my own, all inevitable. The good news is that we have a technology birthed politically in large part by the no nukes movement, which really called the issue on energy. And wind and solar have exceeded all expectations in terms of economics, job creation, deployability. That's where we need to go. We need to shut these reactors as quickly as possible. We need to make the transition wholeheartedly 100% to renewables. In particular, with solar, it has to be rooftop. The solar panels need to go on the rooftops. I am not a fan of big centralized desert-based solar farms until every rooftop in America is covered with a solar panel, with a few exceptions, like where you have trees and stuff. Trees should not come down to make way for solar panels, but you have thousands of square miles of rooftops in this country to be and aqueducts and canals and uh, reservoirs that need to be covered with solar panels. You have many, many places where wind will work, especially now offshore, and the reactors need to shut. And we can use their switching stations to transfer offshore wind and onshore wind into the grid. So what kind of political leadership is needed to make this happen? The political leadership that's needed to make this happen has got to be a lot stronger than what we've got. We do have to uh, acknowledge that Biden's IRA here has made a big difference. And the money going to renewables has definitely had an impact, as did Obama's uh, stimulus tax. Made a big difference in renewables. And we we got to keep that going. we got to get rid of people like Gavin Newsom, who needs to be taken out of office for 
having stabbed us in the back at Diablo Canyon, which he signed an agreement to shut it down, and now he's forcing it ahead. And the Public Utilities Commission in California is sabotaging solar. It's ridiculous. They have an industry with more than 100,000 people working in it in California alone, way more people working in solar in California than nationwide in nuclear or in coal, for God's sakes. And so political leadership has to understand that the future, ecologically and economically, and in terms of public health, is 100% with renewable. Well, thank you so much. Harvey Wasserman, you are a wealth of knowledge, so impressive, and I'm so grateful for your time. Well, thank you, Camilla.